With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. This is Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, I am pleased to be joined today... Uh, by David Lowry. He is the singer-slash-guitarist for the bands Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker, uh, and he's also the senior lecturer in the music business at Terry College of Business University of Georgia. Um, I'm really pleased to be joined by David today because he is one of my favorite follows on uh, Twitter because I, I don't know a ton about the music business um, except uh, for for what I have kind of seen happen to the music business financially over the last few years, uh, the last decade or so, really, since the 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 rise of Napster and the the decline of album sales and and the rise of live touring as essentially the only form of reliable income for for a lot of bands. Um, and one of the reasons I really like following David is because he 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 keeps track of what is happening to the middle class musician. You know, not the superstars, Taylor Swift. And that sort of person is always going to be fine, um, but it's it's the 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 working active musicians who rely on royalties and that sort of stuff who has been hurt the most in recent years. Um, so, David, can you, can you just talk to me a little bit about how how musicians used to make money and how they don't make money now? That that is that is the thing I am most interested in here. Right. So um, when, when I started in this business, even if you, I started with an indie label, we recorded our own record with Camper Van Beethoven in 1984. Uh, we sort of briefly put it out on our friend's label and then realized we could do it ourselves. And so we started doing that. So even as an indie artist, what we would do is we would put out a record and then we'd go on tour and touring, we would largely break even. We might make a little money as an indie artist and then we'd come back home and then wait for our distributor to pay us for those record sales that we had generated right and um and then uh, if you got played on the radio too you also got what are called public performance royalties as well and uh you know it was sort of tour generate sales come back rest make another one <laughs> mm -hmm. tour generate those sales come back right and this is kind of the way it worked for a long time um Touring is not very profitable on the indies, niche, middle class scale. Depends depends how you do it, but but it's not really that profitable, if profitable at all. And like I said, we mostly wanted to break even. Uh, somewhere in the early 2000s, it kind of started to switch, whereby essentially like your recordings were advertisements for your tours, mm -hmm. right? You weren't making any money off of off of your recordings or not as much, uh, significantly less. And we sort of switched to touring to sort of make up for that. Now, the thing that happens with that is one, you go from like a scalable business whereby, you know, you, you, uh, you make a recording and then, uh, you know, the recording kind of does the work for you. Copies of those recordings generate your revenue and stuff like that. You don't have to play the song over and over again. You go to a non-scalable business, you know, like a dentist or something like that, whereby suddenly now you have to play the show over and over again. So there are a lot more expenses associated with touring. Um, and so your, your net proceeds, you know, after you pay those expenses are actually a lot lower. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've kind of calculated it if you tour with a minimum sort of, touring company <laughs> uh you know like two or three people in the crew maybe two people in the crew and four musicians on stage or something like that in a van and a trailer really ultimately and you're paying for say on average 200 dollars 200 people a night you're really probably making about what we would make if we worked at like an amazon uh, distribution center about mm -hmm. 15 bucks an hour okay <laughs> yeah so we sort of traded that scalable kind of, uh, you know, business for a non-scalable business, which, you know, 
kind of going backwards in time. You know, our productive both productivity is going down. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is one of the reasons why if you don't have get a lot of people on tour, you know, this, this is the first, you know, sort of in the biggest picture way. This is sort of the first thing that happened to music musicians to make it a lot harder. Yeah. I well, I mean, how how are bands today supposed to create that that uh, that artists, uh, you know, um, that that baseline for artists to to have a profitable sort of tour, right? I mean, because this is this is the big question for me is, you know, w when you when you when you get rid of the album sales and when you say, you know, well, all of this music on the internet, it's just exposure, you know, to you know, mm -hmm. how do you how do you uh, how do you pay? How do you eat exposure? You know, yeah. like, like how, like, what is, what is, what does this actually do to the the actual working musicians? Right. Well, most of them have other jobs now. Like when I mean, it was I was very fortunate in 1986 when we sort of did our first tour and Camper Van Beethoven began to take off. Is I actually could I could live off of it. You know, being an indie rock band like that's going around and playing the indie clubs putting stuff out ourselves. We, there were like five of us who basically lived off of that. Now I was always paranoid it was going to go away. So I kept my job at this farm mm -hmm. being their <laughs> fill-in truck driver, mm -hmm. which I did until I was signed to Virgin Records, you know, and had a proper yeah. record deal. So I was a little weirder than that. But um, I don't, I mostly now see um, most young indie niche musicians, they plug themselves into a job like I did with that where, they plug themselves usually into a restaurant, a studio, a bar job where they can kind of come and go because they're not making a living off of it. They may be making money, you know, some money while they're on tour, but they don't make a living off of it. And then making the record is another problem because I think a lot of artists are actually literally taking their bar tips mm -hmm. and making their albums with that, right? You mm -hmm. know? I mean, yes, you can record at home, but you still... You know, there's there's competition among musicians and and, uh, and for Sonics and the you know how your records sound and stuff like that right. and that inevitably you inevitably hire the skilled professionals the mixers the engineers the mastering engineers and stuff like that so there's still actually a lot of costs associated with recording. Sure. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, licensing and and kind of how that works because the reason I had actually reached out to you is because I saw you tweeting about how TikTok is essentially uh, you know stealing music and right. and letting letting people you know record videos with whatever whatever music uh, they want which again like that's the sort of thing that a movie studio has to pay a license for to use in a movie um, or uh, you know if Audi wants to put that in their car commercial they have to they have to they have to pay for it so we we we've kind of we, everybody talks or, about or you know podcasters or podcasters, podcasters right you pay I, well, I, I was gonna ask. I was gonna ask. You know, what would it actually cost me if I wanted to? If I wanted to uh, just license the first like fifteen seconds of Teen Angst, uh, the the cracker the cracker song Teen Angst, what would that actually you know cost me if I was to do it legitimately as opposed to just slapping it onto the beginning of of one of my shows? Right. So um, I don't know. I mean, if you were branding your podcast with that, we'd probably ask for like. Uh, well, I don't know. We'd probably ask for like a thousand dollars, but then. You know, you also have to get it from Universal Music Group, the recording, and they probably just don't do anything for less than $5,000 just because that's what it costs to draw up the contract. Mm -hmm. You, though, should your um, distributor of your podcast, though, should pay performance fees. So mm -hmm. there actually is. So, like, I, I, I'm, I'm not 100% positive about this, but somehow I get royalties for podcasts, and I think mm -hmm. it's the your your distributor your podcast distributors are mm -hmm. actually performing the music. So they're paying it. So that would be uh, Apple, right. Spotify, et cetera. Yeah. So that would be like, that would be like getting royalties from radio play. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because in theory, it's, it's probably a weird loophole. It's probably not perfect to pay a performance royalty because you actually are making a copy, but it's, you know, typically somebody, when they listen to a podcast, they're listening like radio. So I think in general, our, our, but like BMI and ASCAP are sort of like unions of songwriters. They just mm -hmm. sort of go, oh, well, it's a, it's a public performance and we're glad to take the money for it and just sure. sort of treat it like radio. So, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, I, I, I see, see, this is already spiraling way out of control, you know, a thousand dollars to you, $5,000 plus, you know, well, you know, I know. I, I mean, I, like I, but doing it legitimately again is like, it's, it, this is how people used to get paid. This is how mm -hmm. people, you know, and frankly, this is how it should work. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, if uh, a musician makes mm -hmm. a song, then you should, you should, you should pay for it if you want to use it as part of your, um, uh, uh, product but again this is not happening uh with like tiktok um and i know there was a big fight with youtube and and spotify and and a bunch of a mm. bunch of the rest of them but can you talk to me just a little bit about how that that uh kind of has kind of evolved and has has shaken out over the last year or two here yeah so tiktok came up and you know think about tiktok actually what's interesting about tiktok is it's not necessarily letting their users pick the music they actually have a sounds tab where they are providing songs i've written mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to their users to use for videos. And uh, they've got some licenses now, but when I started writing about this, they didn't have any licenses for my music. And <laughs> I mean, you know, there's sort of these these valuations going with, with TikTok of like 30 billion, 50 mm -hmm. billion, you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, they have some licenses in place now, but they are doing their damnedest to really not, license like to get away with licensing as little music as possible they have these opt-in licenses which is I, I, you know this is the way uh, a lot of technology firms tend to look at this they don't look at this like the way you would look at things in normal uh, liberal uh, democracies right their idea is well hey if you want to get paid we have these licenses and sign them rather than i'm going to ask you first before I use my music, or, you know, your music, stuff right. like that. They've, they've sort of, you know, this is the way sort of, this goes back to Napster, you know, it's sort of the sure. MO of all technology companies. So um, I don't know if I, if your listeners know, but, you know, I also led the class action. I, I filed the first class action and they were combined later against uh, Spotify and uh, Rhapsody Napster for, again, using independent songwriter songs without licenses and not paying royalties. And that settled, you know, uh, and such. So when I saw TikTok come along, I thought, here we go again, right? Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, yeah, it's just this is really, really frustrating to me. That's why, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, well, you know, not to toot my own horn here, but you know, I thought about when I saw TikTok, I was like, here we, here we go again. What can we do? What what else is there that we can do here? And so when, uh, you know, the, there became these national security concerns about TikTok's data gathering, which, by the way, if you look up some of uh, the deconstructs of the TikTok app, it's mm -hmm. pretty outrageous. Yeah. Just what the, the, the data yeah. they're grabbing. I mean, yeah, I like... It's, it's crazy. It's there's no reason they need to be doing that i would say it makes more sense that it is uh, a foreign state uh gathering data mm -hmm. that they're going to figure that they're going to gather they're going to find useful one day right yeah yeah i mean this is this is i mean this is honestly how tiktok kind of first popped onto my radar aside yeah. from like the random videos i would see on uh, on on Twitter since Twitter killed Vine stupidly, um, but the the you know the I would just I I all of a sudden it's like wait why is this Chinese firm grabbing all of this data I mean this is not why why are people putting this on their phones you know don't don't do that like well like one of the things it does I was reading this German uh, sort of guy who deconstructs apps his thing is like like he had all these weird questions is why does TikTok play this tone through your phone really quickly and then re-record it. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the idea was that it was some kind of fingerprinting your device, right? Mm -hmm. So even if it couldn't get the data just by simply doing that, oh, here's here's this fingerprint again, you know, it, it does all kinds of odd things. Yeah. But, but um, so if you've been in the, you know, been around for like 35 years or whatever like that, you, you meet some interesting people. And I met some interesting people that were in the State Department and then also uh, on the NSC so this time I just wrote a letter and I'm like, hey, while you're at it, um, you know, there's probably a few billion dollars worth of value that songwriter, American intellectual property was used to create TikTok with no licenses, you know? And yeah. I don't know whatever became of the CFIUS 
uh, which is a good name, CFIUS is a yeah. mysterious committee, right? So um, I don't know ever what became of that, but I was kind of hoping maybe songwriters would get a settlement out of that because it was it was built on music and virtually none of the music was licensed. There were a few licenses out there, but virtually yeah. none of it was. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about your, your lawsuit against Spotify and the rest, uh, Napster yeah. and Rhapsody and all those? Because, I, I again, that's a, it's a really interesting story that I think a lot of people, again, m- you know, most people are sitting there listening to uh, Taylor Swift or, you know, uh, Metallica or whoever, right? Um, and they're, I, I'm showing my age. Those are like the only, you know, right. I'm trying to. Uh, but the, the, uh, but but the the independent artists did not have you know these these deals through through their labels to um, uh, kind of make the money off of that. So I, could you could you could you explain the lawsuit and also like how it ended up getting settled and and what mm-hmm. the the financial ramifications were of that? Yeah. So um, what it was is wasn't that Spotify. So okay. So look, you can get a license for uh, streaming any song you want, cover any song you want, and I can't say no. Mm-hmm. They're called federal compulsory mechanical licenses, right? Um, and, and there's kind of there's sort of a rationale for it, although I think it's sort of worn out. But but the idea is that you can get this federal compulsory license, but you have to go through certain steps. You have to notify the owner of the composition, and that's to sort of demonstrate you know who owns it and who to pay, right? Mm-hmm. And then I know that you're using it, right? And um, then you have to account on a you know on a, on a regular basis there's all these rules about it and stuff like that right well when spotify came out you know i saw a lot of people complaining about you know sort of the amount that they were getting from their labels you know but that's kind of you know that's a hard everybody's contract is different stuff like that mm-hmm. but i what i focused on was my songwriter royalties right and i couldn't find them <laughs> you know now yeah. i have administrators and i have some I have some co-publishing with Warner. So it's kind of a bit complicated. So I go, they must be just paying the wrong person. And I spent about two years looking around. And I couldn't ever figure it out. Finally, I'm like, hey, they're not paying me. And every independent songwriter that I knew couldn't find their mechanical royalties either. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so we came to the conclusion after a little back and forth that they did not have licenses. And what apparently what they've been doing is kind of buying people off one by one as this sort of came up. Mm-hmm. Um, they literally had as people license. were, I'm sorry, as people were complaining to them, mm-hmm. they would, they would just cut a check to the individual who had figured out that they were getting, you know, not paid. Yeah. Like for instance, uh, at some point, uh, one of a record label out of Chicago forgetting the name punk label had complained about it. And uh, you know, so, and then suddenly all the stuff was back on there. So they must've been some sort of settlement and the back money was paid. But I mean, we just couldn't find it. And uh, it seemed to be a very widespread problem. So the thing, I mean, I, I could have like done a lawsuit or got a settlement, probably got six figures or something from them. Because, um, you know, I just had the data down cold. All my music was registered. You know, it was just up and close, right, for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought I'd go the class action route. You know, and uh, just because it just seemed like there was a lot of people out there who who didn't get their royalties. At the same time, a few other people launched uh, lawsuits at the same time. They eventually were all combined and eventually Spotify settled for forty three million dollars, although it's actually higher because of how the settlement works. Mm-hmm. And if you filed, a, it, it was it was actually pretty good money that most independent songwriters got from doing this, uh, you know, from this class action. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, you know, it was like, I felt like it was a shot across the bow to the whole industry to get this figured out. So what quickly came on the heels of this settlement was the Music Modernization Act that in theory was a compromise between songwriters and, um, you know, songwriters can, record performers sign deals with record labels, songwriters sign deals with publishers like publishers are like record labels for songwriters Mm -hmm. so it it was sort of compromised between publishers songwriters and the streaming services we got some gives and you know uh, we got some things from them and they got some things from us one of which was they could just get a blanket license which is instead of notifying every songwriter they just had to notify the copyright office so starting january 1st music's licensed a different way 
right, mm-hmm. for streaming services. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that happened from this lawsuit is that, I mean, you know, there's only a handful of copyright reform legislations, you know, I mean, there's probably like 30 or 40 of them since the yeah. founding of the Republic, but maybe that's not a handful, but that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That, I mean, Congress that's a, that's a big passes win. a bill, you know. Yeah. It's hard to get Congress to pass just about anything these days, so that's that's a that's a big that's a big win. I mean, I, I this is this is almost too basic for you uh, to explain to people, but could you just talk a little bit about the difference between uh, uh, how songwriters get paid versus how performers get paid? Because again, this is a thing I think a, a lot of people don't understand when they're looking at you know what used to be album liner notes, right? The 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 credits there have like actual huge financial implications in terms right. of who gets who gets writing royalties versus who gets performance uh, mm-hmm. royalties. Right. So most of the time. We're nowadays we're accustomed to, uh, you know, especially in like genres of rock and country like that. You're assuming the person who's singing the songs and performing the songs have written at least mm-hmm. co-written the songs, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have a a record that comes out, it plays on the radio. There's actually two pieces of copyright that you're listening to. You're listening to a copyright for the sound recording, which is generally owned by the record label, and then you're listening to the copyright of the composition, the song in abstract, right? You can, mm-hmm. people can make covers of my song and I, so you get songwriting royalties for the composition and you get artist royalties for the recording. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes those are separate people. You know, some of my songs, like I wrote one song with my roommate from college, you know, they're not bound by the recording contract. Right. You know, so that songwriting royalties are separate and they somehow go to him, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, you, so yes, so there's two things that are happening there. Now, the neat thing about songwriter royalties is generally if you were a performer and you had a record deal, and this is just the way most record deals work, is that, you know, you, your share of the, you know, it's the same way movies are recouped or unrecouped, right? Um, all the expenses of making the record and usually like half of the promotion expenses and videos and things like that, are actually paid out of the artist share of royalties, right? So generally when you're an artist, even if you're kind of successful, you spend a lot of time being unrecouped, right? Yet performers are unrecouped mm-hmm. on their recording projects largely because, it, you know, you know, just the way the deals are structured, right? Uh, uh, you know, I may take it to, I may get a $400,000 advance to make a record, spend most of it on the record, keep the rest for myself, that's the old days, actually. It's probably more like 50 now. And, uh, but then there's like all these promotional costs associated with that and stuff like that. You pay for that. So the great thing about being a performer songwriter is your songwriter royalties are separate. So usually you got those and lived on those, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, with an, so, the, so the classic deal that you're, if you had a good manager and a good attorney, they would keep your deal so that you were always unrecouped. Okay, this, this seems a little weird. Yeah. Um, on recouped on the recording side, but you were making tons of songwriter royalties, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's basically if you're unrecouped, you get paid more than you're worth. You have to sort of be a quant to think about that a little more. And but you don't want to be yeah, too unrecouped. This is like algebra. Yeah, this is, uh, you know this, yeah. <laughs> this quadratic equations. And stuff. Exactly. <laughs> but but the idea is you get paid if you're unrecouped a little bit, or even like six hundred thousand dollars, like I was at the end of my cracker deal with Virgin, right? Mm-hmm. That's reasonable, and they just keep you there, and they keep you keep giving you advances to make records, and they, uh, you know, you keep earning the songwriter royalties. So the songwriter royalties are important because they never get recouped. Okay. Or if you if you have an actual a good lawyer, they never get recouped. Most people don't do that. So that's actually very important that you get paid for those uh, for you know for essentially writing the book or writing the screenplay right mm-hmm. you get paid for that right. part of it and that's a separate copyright you know that's okay. they make the movie from that right okay i should have done yeah. that from the beginning actually right okay. right so this would be like if uh you know uh, uh i'm just trying to think you know christopher nolan makes a movie right in and he would get he would be able to sell the rights to republish the screenplay as opposed mm-hmm. to Warner Brothers getting the the money from ticket sales and that sort of thing. Right, exactly. Is that okay. Yeah. Yeah, so Interesting. Um, so yeah, so it's an important thing. But the problem with that is that your songwriter royalties are subject to these compulsory licenses. So, you know, compulsory license means two things. 
One, you have to license under certain situations. But two, there is an obscure three-judge panel in the Library of Congress that sets our royalties for five years at a pop. Mm -hmm. And they got it wrong. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually, you know, songwriters it, royalties have been set essentially in that manner since 1909. Well, not exactly in that manner, but they've been fixed by the federal government mm -hmm. since 1909. Oh, that's interesting. So how does that, how does that actually work? I mean, do they sit there and uh, crunch a bunch of numbers and say, OK, this is how much everybody should be getting paid for each each you know, performance of, of this song? Or right. how does that how does that actually uh, work? Well, there's they. The, the parties subject to this regulation go before these three administrative judges and present evidence. Although it's a little bizarre because they don't really let songwriters. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. There's this, this is a really great songwriter in Nashville who's, who's basically tested the limits of the administrative state and has finally got himself uh, to present he personally as a songwriter has managed to present evidence directly to that panel of judges but for a long time it was the streaming the radio uh, well not radio uh, digital streaming services um record labels and publishers uh mm -hmm. presented all that evidence there and they have their own economists and and basically they try to arrive at a free market rate for um songwriter royalties even though there's no actual free market Never mm. has been one, so <laughs> it's a little Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. If you take, I mean, it's it's sort of it's rational, and 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 I suppose if you forget that you've gone down a rabbit hole, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean, so so yeah, so they to the the last round of uh, settling. I took some notes here uh, that in 2020 we were supposed to get 13.1 percent of the streaming services gross revenue prorated per song per stream, right? Okay. Okay, sure. So if you had all 100 streams on the this is the world's stupidest streaming service that just had one of my songs <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it only had 100 streams you, okay. for that month, you would get 13% of the revenue. I would get okay. all 13% of that, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And, sure. And that generally works out for the songwriter to something like about 8 to 9 one hundredths of a penny per stream. Right. So if you're keeping count, it's like a, you know, it's it's really small, <laughs> right? Right. Well, so how does this compare to like radio play? Um, well, I, I did the math on it one time. Now remember, radio. Were you ever in radio? I I mean, I've 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 always listened to radio. Right. I've never I've never worked in radio. Right. Okay. So uh, audience metrics are highly inflated and both BS. Right. BS. Okay. Right? Sure. So usually, you know, a radio station has some sort of audience rating, and that's kind of over the course of 24 hours. Somebody skimmed by, maybe listened to one song on your station mm -hmm. or something. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know it's highly inflated. Um, I actually tried to do the math on that by taking the royalties that one commercial radio station in um, a tertiary market. I don't remember which one. It was like Fort Collins, Colorado, or something like that. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it was about... Um, 400% higher okay. than what you get from streaming services, okay? And even that was kind of questionable because I was using their metrics, which are highly inflated, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's, it's hard to say, but it's definitely a lot lower than commercial radio. Uh, okay. I, I mean, last quarter, I got $1,600 for my songwriting on American commercial radio. Across okay. all my songs, across all commercial airplays, whereas I probably got thirty from YouTube. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's crazy. I probably I got mean, three three hundred maybe from from Spotify. Yeah, okay. Something and or Apple. I, I don't know. Usually it's like 10, 20 times higher. Yeah. For for um, from YouTube to Apple. Yeah. I, I mean, that's I mean, that's in, uh, just thinking about, you know, how people listen to music now, radio versus Google versus, mm -hmm. you know, 
or well, YouTube, I guess, which is owned by mm-hmm. Google, but uh, uh, versus Spotify. I mean, that just is that's insane to me um, what what those numbers look like. Let me uh, let me let me shift gears slightly here and ask uh, and go back back to the touring question, because, you know, we live we live in obviously a very weird time right now. The, the age of covid mm-hmm. people can't actually go on tour. Um, you know, people are people are essentially relying on album sales and streaming sales and that mm-hmm. sort of things to, to make a living right now. Is that is that even possible now at this point in our uh, uh, musical financial history? I mean, I, I the the idea that 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 a, a band can't go out there and tour almost seems like a death sentence, yeah. like a, a fiscal death sentence. Well, certainly for certain niche genres, I think jazz is uh, is completely unsustainable. Blues mm-hmm. is probably unsustainable. A lot of the traditional American uh, art forms are not sustainable anymore. I'd say any rock band that plays for less than, on average, this means that, you know, this counts your Monday night in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I always pick on Tulsa, Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, it's a great town, though. Um, <laughs> Long, great musical history, um, but th- th- we never do well there. So uh, yeah, so this means that you know, from your New York to your Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the same week, if you're doing uh, three or four hundred a night, you probably make a living without another job. You know, four or five people in the band, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I don't know, but that's average across every night. So that means you know you're doing fifteen hundred people in. New York and you're doing uh, right. know, 150 in Tulsa, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma on the, on the Monday night. Right. So, and there's only so many places you can play without, um, uh, you know, essentially so many shows you can play a year before you start cannibalizing your own ticket sales. Right. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really work. Like a few years ago, I had a really good friend. He's been a concert promoter forever and he managed us, co-managed us for a while. And he goes, you know, Instead of playing 160 shows a year, why don't you try playing 40 and I bet you make as much money, right? And he wasn't quite right, but he was pretty right. <laughs> I was close mm-hmm. enough that mm-hmm. I learned my lesson about that. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, I actually got to play less shows. So, so this is the formula that we've come up with, right? And, and it's really funny. It's, it's borrowing essentially from the movie business. It's borrowing some sort of windowing things. So in the yeah. last year, the formula we've come up with that helps us play shows and, and, you know, basically have some money to live on is I make records that I sell only at the shows. Like I'll make a thousand copies of solo record. I sell it at the shows only, right. Before I put it onto digital services. Right. Mm -hmm. And that'll give me like, and I charge a premium and there's no, I'm a specialty project. Why shouldn't I charge $30 for a, for a CD, you know? Right. Sure. Something like that. By the way, actually CDs are, are the best invention ever because they're so cheap to make and everybody still has a cd player or maybe they don't now it's getting a little long in the tooth but it used Mm -hmm. to be way better than vinyl people were trying to do this in vinyl vinyl costs so much to make right yeah yeah yeah. anyway so one of the things we've been doing is like i've been releasing these um records on on top of a tour and so have my bandmates well also largely we've been doing solo records because these are kind of you know cheaper to make and you know no fighting over the money, <laughs> you know. It's yeah. like, yeah, I sold 200 CDs at the show. That's my money, you know, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one thing we did is we basically created a theatrical window, right? Mm-hmm. And then what I do next is then I go to, you know, view on demand, which or not really view on demand, but you know, sales, digital sales, sure, right? Sure. Digital downloads, right? Digital downloads, right? We do that for a while, and then kind of when the when you've taken most of the demand and and you can do those things directly right right you do them just through your website or through your website or Bandcamp, or even like there's some no fee distributors now that are interesting but i think they're owned by the majors they're taking Mm -hmm. your data um Mm -hmm. anyway and so and then then sort of the 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 tail end then you put it on the streaming services now that works for established legacy acts established bands that already have an audience i mean if you're a Mm -hmm. new band you got to I don't know what you do. You just got to give it away. Get somebody's <laughs> yeah. rich parent to, yeah, to uh, finance you. I, I don't know how you do it. You know, was that over? Uh, your show was yeah. Uh, well, 
Well, no, the the I I well, so this is this is really interesting. But how does that how does that work right now when nobody can go on tour? Well, that's what I mean. I'm, okay, so I, it's, like it's it's it it doesn't. It, I I mean, it just seems like it just seems like you know a, a kind of apocalyptic nightmare right. out there for you know. So what I'm gonna do? This is my last solo one I did. I you know I sold for twenty five bucks on tour. You know, I sold a thousand copies and then I moved it to digital. So, you know, I'm, you know, this doesn't sound like much, but like, again, consider that record. No, like you say, it's like a theatrical window. You make, you make, you make a, there's a premium that you charge Mm -hmm. to show it in theaters. And then it's, uh, then you can show it to people at, at, at home for slightly cheaper. And then it it goes to, you know, HBO or TNT or whatever. Well, so, so my new record, I'd planned to release it here in our December, January tour that we always do. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the other guys in camper had a release, you know, put together and, uh, but we don't have that. So we're, we had to lose that window. So we're going to sell it off of our website and digital at the same time. And it's not going to be as good. It's going to mm-hmm. be like that window instead of being like, uh, with, you know, that window is not going to be 25 grand for me, you know, which pays for my time to make a record and the cost sure. and paying my musicians and engineers and stuff. Right. It's it's gonna it's gonna be like five or seven or something like that, and, mm-hmm. and so that kills that. But that's you know okay. Look, twenty four grand um, on a CD. That's that's like uh, I think I calculated this recently. It's a hundred million views on YouTube, which I don't know who gets that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Right, really big stars. It's about six on Spotify. I think is what it is, or seven on Spotify. Seven, yeah, seven million. Yeah, something yeah. like seven million yeah. on Spotify streams, and about three and a half or four on Apple Music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rest are sort of fall between those three extremes. But that's ninety nine percent of your streaming market right there. So, right, right. Um, so you know that that will take years. I mean, if I, if I consider a recurrent hit. Like my ninety nine percent of my revenue comes from basically five songs mm-hmm. um, that I wrote, and um, so like low usually gets eight or nine million streams across the big streaming services a quarter, mm-hmm. right? So you know here here I'm putting out a solo album later in my career, not radio hits. You know I don't know if they'd ever, I don't know if those will ever get to the eight or nine million streams yeah. on streaming services. Yeah. Maybe they will. Yeah. Uh, so so low is still uh, still bringing in uh, mm-hmm. a a decent amount of revenue, even even with the um, you know decreased royalties from streaming. It's still it's still doing okay for you. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing. Uh, you look. First of all, I have all those streams because you know, a big record company, <laughs> you know, Virgin Records, mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically put millions of dollars into my two bands over a number of years, right? And they mm-hmm. built kind of a brand and then they had some hits that are recurrents, right? Um, mm-hmm. I have some hits that are recurrent off of all of that, right? Um, okay, so, so I can't say that streaming actually necessarily pays the right amount for Cracker because there was all this initial investment up front. But weirdly, uh, streaming's kind of a wash for Cracker. Okay. Um, but for Camper Van Beethoven, it's a disaster, right? Okay. Because I, okay. I have this incremental uh, revenue on these these five songs that, that are long paid off. They're in the catalog. They're generating what we call bathtub money. Maybe you call it the same in the movie business, but they, you're sitting in the bathtub and and your check arrives in the mail. You know, you're like, oh, yeah. that's a good day's work. Okay. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. But but you have these songs that are doing that. So weirdly, and this gets into the the the, the thing about streaming that nobody understands is that going to a flat rate per spin was actually a really stupid idea. Of course, I don't know what the alternative would have been. But it's actually a really stupid idea because what it ends up doing is it ends up sort of overpaying you on the hits and underpaying you on like all sort of the niche stuff and the album tracks or the niche genres and all of that stuff because you have fewer streams to break down your fixed costs over, right? So, so you know, yeah. in the normal economy, like a niche product always costs more 
than a mainstream product. You, you know, your your um, rock mount hand stitched Western wear shirt. You know, 150 bucks. You know, from the store, 250 bucks if you get a really good one, right? Versus you know the semi-ironic American flag T-shirt. You know, printed, made in Cambodia, and shipped over in containers, right? You know that that could be five dollars, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so uh, you just flat pay per stream means you overpay the hits and you underpay everything else. Right, 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 right. And, and, and you know, in the old days, everybody goes, "Well, you know, but albums all cost the same when it was vinyl albums, right?" You know, they actually right. didn't. They right. sort of had a list price, and like if you were a niche artist, you didn't. I mean, unless you were trying to get more popular or something like that, generate additional yeah. sales, you didn't discount. But yeah. you you would always get a discount on the big stuff. And then places like Best Buy would further discount. Sure. You know, because sure, so, sure. they were trying to sell, you know, stereo systems and, you know, yeah. car stereo. Trying to get you in the door. Yeah, right. right. You know. And then the other thing is, you know, when you buy an album, you're basically buying 1,500 streams up front, right? You get it up front, right? Right, sure. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the way we figured it out, right? You buy an album, <laughs> yeah. you buy fifteen hundred streams at Strap, whether you use them or not, you know. So, right. so you know, Ornette Coleman's science fiction. I think I've listened to that probably about twenty times in my life. That album, you know, and I don't regret paying for it or anything like that. But I didn't use all fifteen hundred of those streams. You know, he got a bunch of free streams, and that sure. and that basically made the value of each listen was the each listen was more expensive, right? Sure. So you got a flat streaming, you jack the whole thing. Uh, it, yeah. it it doesn't work the same, you know. And then and you know and then you know big records. They would discount them later, like the Columbia Record Club. Ask any performer, you know, that was ever around when they had the Columbia Record Club. Sure. Where, where are your royalties from the Columbia Record Club? They were very similar to Spotify royalties, right? Uh, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, they were really, really low. There's a there's a thing called a, a, a mid price three quarters rate where they just slash everything three quarters. Your songwriter royalties, mm -hmm. everything like that. But when it goes to the record club, it's not even really a mid. It's it's like almost like a cutout, you know. It's hmm. like it's a very minimal royalty on those record clubs. Um, huh. That's I had no idea about that. That's interesting. So so yeah. really, streaming you should put in the record club category. <laughs> yeah. You know, which which brings me yeah. to to my one point that I want to make. Since this is largely about the movie business. I was kind of horrified to see that. Um, I've always said to my friends, it's like, we should do things more like the movie business. It's they, they get the better lawyers, you know, from the better law schools, you know, mm -hmm. you know that they, they've got, they've got, they've got a, they've got more money. They've got to be doing this better. But then I see that, is it Warner? Just like, it's just taken everything straight to streaming, yeah. no theatrical. So Warner, Warner, well, so Warner, uh, what Warner's is doing is taking their entire 2021 slate and releasing it in theaters and on HBO Max, their streaming service, simultaneously. Right. So they're so trying to build a platform, right? Right. So they're they're basically trading a year's worth of uh, theatrical revenue for uh, you know adding 20 or 30 million subscribers mm -hmm. to HBO Max. But you know, if the movie business did that, you would never. It, it would not. It would be a disaster, just like for the music music yes. business, because you don't get. Look, the okay. So a friend of mine, uh, I've worked with him for a long time. It releases our records in the rest of the world. It's this company called Cooking Vinyl, Martin Goldschmidt. He's really really smart. So I called him up uh, to do an artist rights symposium for my students. Right, have him talk. And one of the students said, "How are you doing?" Um, during streaming because we heard that people aren't listening to as much music they stopped streaming music they started streaming video right he goes well it doesn't really matter because streaming services essentially pay x amount per subscriber per month so it never changes right mm -hmm. so essentially what we did with the music business by going to streaming is another another thing that we did is it, it doesn't matter if something's viral you know, it doesn't matter if you have a few big blockbuster hits because you're essentially once you're a record label or distributor of a certain size, you kind of got a pretty stable percentage of that pool of streaming revenue every month, whether and it's the same whether people listen a lot or whether mm -hmm. they they listen, you know, a little like, you know, and, and then you got to wonder, like, what do I mean, you know, Taylor's universal music groups with things like Taylor Swift or. Uh, beggars with Adele and stuff like that. If they put their big artists onto streaming, they essentially bigfoot themselves. 
Mm-hmm. They just take the revenue that they were getting anyway, and mm-hmm. it just goes to Taylor Swift. Yeah, you know, because companies like Universal Music Group have something like forty percent of the streams. You know, uh, I think Warner's down at like fifteen, and mm-hmm. Sony somewhere in the middle. You, you don't. So, right without like theatrical or sales on there, you just, this is weird. It's a really weird business now. Yeah, I mean, but. Uh, it, what are what are the what are the how are the major studios making or the major labels making their their money then if it's if they're kind of cannibalizing themselves well, this way I don't think anybody's really figured that out yet <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, yeah. the, the two friends of mine that point this out all, all happen to work for soundtrack okay. do soundtracks for movie studios yeah. that's sort of my joke about like I think the movie studios are generally smarter but not necessarily the movie business is generally smarter because it's a lot more money. I don't think anybody's figured that out yet, honestly. We literally, we are. You, you got to imagine that streaming services in in the industrialized co- economies are mature now. They're not going to really mm-hmm. add that many more. I mean, the growth that's coming is coming from developing countries. Like Mexico right. is, you know, going to be a big, you know, it's it's a big growth rate right now, right? Sure. But Canada, U.S., U.K., right? So you're essentially in the industrialized countries. You're you're working with a fixed pool of revenue, right? So mm-hmm. if you go back and look at old sales charts, it looked more like the, the movie business. Like if you go back to, I think it's 1979, I might be wrong on this, in the vinyl era, the per capita revenue for music in the United States like jumps like from like 47 to like 77 or something one year. But mm-hmm. if you go back and look at it, it's like, it's like, Pink Floyd album, Led Zeppelin album, uh, disco was still big. Uh, you know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like you had these big albums. It dragged people in the stores. They bought other albums, right? You get this viral. You can get like viral right, right. demand on records and stuff like that. And you just cut all that off now. Yeah. If you use yeah. only streaming. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I this is this is. My this has always been kind of my my uh, worry looking at what happened to the music business and and watching the film business make essentially the same mistakes over again. I think they have a little more control over it because the, there isn't that. Uh, I mean, there's Pirate Bay and whatever, but there isn't that kind of viral Napster phenomenon where an entire generation just says, ah, screw it. We're just going to download music now. Right. Uh, and, it, and and there there hasn't been that that breakage yet. Um, but I, I do worry uh, I do worry uh, looking at the movie business and just thinking like, well, you know, uh, there's, you guys have a lot of advantages here. Why are you throwing them all away to try mm-hmm. and compete with Netflix? Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Well, um, you know, I, I don't I know. Do. Am I wrong? Are you I, like, I, cause you, you, you sound exactly like how I, you, you sound like a much smarter and more organized version of what I think to myself when I, when I, when I, you know, kind of look at these these studios making these decisions. Yeah, I mean, I I think the same thing. Why? I think it's because um, I don't know. You get me all started on this. Capital's really cheap right now. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're like, uh, you can you can borrow money. Well, you borrow money from the Chinese because they want to have influence over this too. That's a you know that's a right. that's another crazy thing is that <laughs> you know the, the ten cent bought parts of the streaming ser- other streaming services and then bought like 20% of U- universal music group. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so um, it, those things look more profitable than they are b- because, you know, based on revenue versus interest rates, they seem really valuable, like really good investments. But if interest mm-hmm. rates ever went back to something kind of normal or, I don't know what's normal anymore, but but would <laughs> would would Spotify be worth? I mean, how can Spotify be worth almost as much as, you know, the entire music business, right? Right. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, like 40, 30, 40 billion or something like that. Uh, right. Yeah, um, maybe not. I mean, so I think those businesses like are like not those valuations are not sustainable or. Um, you know, the streaming services like both video and music or the underlying assets are wildly undervalued. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing about you know mispricing. You never know if yeah. if yeah. if it's this is mispriced or that's mis. You know, is this underpriced or is that overpriced? Right. right? So I, right, right. So I think there's and, a whole and, generation of executives have come up that basically see valuation as profit. Yeah. And they're pushing out. They've never had experiences with real net profit businesses, and they're pushing out all the younger generation has come in and is pushing out the older music business uh or film business executives and stuff like that and uh, i don't know yeah i don't know i mean i think i there's another angle to this in the in the the film world which is uh you know the the they have no idea uh right now how to pay artists uh like royalties and stuff right so the 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 residuals on streaming are very different um uh than they are for dvd sales or 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 you know plays on tv or whatever um and then you know on top of that you also have the uh you 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 have no profit participation really on on like a netflix movie right mm-hmm. you you don't get 5% of first dollar gross if you're will smith you instead just get 20 million dollars up front and that's 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 it or 30 million dollars up front whatever whatever he got paid for bright um, it's, it's just interesting. And there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different, uh, angles to this that I think, uh, again, are very similar to what is, what has happened to the music business and what is continuing to kind of mm-hmm. happen there. All right. We're, we're running a little bit long. Sorry this is a little that. longer. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. It's fine. It's great. This is a great, interesting <laughs> conversation. Is there anything, I, I always like to close by asking if there's anything, uh, I should have asked if there's anything you, you think people should know, uh, about what we've, what we've been discussing today. I think, uh, I think. You know, if what did I what did I foolishly fail to ask? Um, I think you actually got it. I mean, I, 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 these are the things I, I, I had public. Pol- yeah. I mean, we kind of got all of this stuff in there at one point or another. I mean, I wish actually one time we do talk about this, but we should talk about uh, I, I want to do I want to revisit uh, Napster versus Metallica one point okay. because if you look at the Charlie Rose show where was it uh, Professor Griff and Lars Ulrich were both on there, okay. everything Lars says comes true. It's like he's a, oh, really? yeah, it's like he's reading a you know from a crystal ball or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll find I'll find that and I'll link to it in the <laughs> yeah. in the the, the show notes um, because it, it it's interesting. I always thought Lars got a bum rap. Mm-hmm um from from music fans and like frankly other artists too when he was you know kind of kind of pointing out that that napster is the death of the music industry um yeah well you know uh uh, we we around my blog toyed with just calling him saint lars all the time just to (laughs) to troll everybody (laughs) he was like a martyr saint you know it was like yeah it's funny he was right he was ahead of his time that's right um Great. Well, thank you very much for uh, being on the show, David. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, is there anything you want to plug? Is there? Can we tell people the website where they can go buy your your uh, your, your your albums? Uh, DavidLowryMusic.com or Bandcamp. January first at exactly twelve midnight, I am releasing a new album. I didn't want anything in twenty twenty one. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah so you can get it then I'm going to live stream it I think too on Facebook and YouTube uh, okay. if you follow my page on Facebook I I, have to, I don't even actually my wife runs it but uh, <laughs> yeah great great uh, yeah, check out his new album and uh, we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.